welcome to Safe Inside, brought to you by Theratribe. I'm Jeremy Loomis, and these are my conversations with Sandra Fields, an LPC and certified clinical trauma treatment provider with over 35 years experience helping people who have been through trauma. Welcome back to Safe Inside, the podcast brought to you by Theratribe. I'm Jeremy. I'm Sandy. And today we're going to talk some about steps in the healing journey. We're going to talk about creating structure. Yes, I, I want to clarify a little bit for some of the therapists out there who may be following us. There's two different ways to talk about creating structure. One is a particular psychomotor type of therapy that we're not really going to talk about today, but we are going to talk about for those of you listening, what your therapy process should kind of look like, what kind of structure should you have throughout the process, um, no matter what type of therapy treatment that you may, you may have, if that makes sense. So the structure really of your treatment journey, uh, both inside the therapy office and also out in real life as you walk out of the therapy office into your, the rest of your world. So where shall we begin? Well, I think that I'd like to give sort of a context around what trauma treatment can look like. Um, most people with complex trauma treatment, many of them, if you can imagine growing up as a child who had been invalidated and hurt and not really uh, valued as a person, um, you would grow to learn that you don't have much agency and you don't have much value in the world. And so doing your trauma treatment, doing all of that means that our normal, what we call regular sort of talk therapy is not going to be as effective as other things sometimes. And so the best trauma treatment is actually usually a, sort of a medley or a very intentional use of different types of trauma treatments and um, interventions, as well as, as coping skills and new life skills and, and healing um, on your own. So good trauma treatment covers a huge gamut of different types of, of modalities or, mm. or what we would call you know, the, 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 the different types of treatment um, techniques and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that it should be just hither or whether or you know piece together willy-nilly there needs to be some structure around this particular uh, journey I guess it's really a journey and it, it there needs to be some structure there needs to be some sort of map of of not just where we're going to go but how are we going to get from here to there so that it's not just I'm just going to throw this at someone or or I'm going to try this and see if it works. And if you, you know, you, you want some direction in which you're heading. And so that's, that's a good place to start, I think, with this context. Um, I found in my work, I have actually pulled a tool from trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I pulled a tool from that. That, that particular type of therapy is, is evidence-based for children 5 to 18. But they have a tool that they use that I use for all of my clients that, ex that come to me presenting with trauma. And the reason that I use this particular tool, and we're going to go over that because it's a nice way of keeping direction, 
is because there's no specific technique that you have to hang on to these. And all of these pieces are necessary in order to get to the end of trauma treatment. So I, I follow this particular tool and it is an acronym. And the acronym is actually PRACTICE, P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E. And so each of those, um, of course, letters from the word stands for something that uh, I use with my trauma treatment. I'm going to remind those of you who are therapists, if you've been trained in TFCBT, um, some of the words like the parenting are probably not going to be hanging out too much on today. I'm going to stick with the, the very straightforward, generalized trauma practice, um, trauma treatment practice. So I hope that makes sense, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think that'll be a good context for this. Um, this will be a helpful thing to familiarize yourself with if you find that you're, you know, one of the listeners who this, this material applies to. Um, it'll be a way to sort of organize your thoughts and organize the pursuit of things. You know, it's just like, you know, we're not, we're not saying that talk therapy is not useful, but oh, there's no. a reason to, for using different things for different purposes. And I'll often say, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't start the process of building a house by making a really good roof. Right. You know, it doesn't matter how well you can make a roof. If you're trying to put that straight on the foundation before you even start working on the house, it's not going to do what a roof is supposed to do. So build wisely. So let's talk a little bit about building wisely. Okay. That sounds good. Um, the P in the practice stands for psychoeducation and parenting. And I, mean, I said I wasn't going to talk about the parenting. I'm not talking about parenting the kids, which is from the TFCBT, but reparenting our own inner child. Um, which at some point, I'm sure this will be its own episode. I'm more than one or two, I would say. Yeah. But... <laughs> Yeah, so psychoeducation, it's really important with clients. You know, if you've experienced trauma, then knowing how isolated you feel and how kind of different from everyone else, the thought is no one has experienced trauma like this, therefore I'm a shameful person, I'm dirty, or I couldn't tell anyone this because, oh my gosh, they won't believe me, um, or what kind of person has this happened to them? or any of those kinds of, of uh, things, beliefs that people hold when they come to, to treatment that kind of keep them from feeling like they're okay as people, you know? There's like some of that fear of annihilation wrapped up in that, right? Absolutely. Like if I make this known, then I make myself invisible. Yeah, yeah, there, there's that. And there's also a level of, of feeling unsafe if you let this be known or that people will perceive you as damaged is another one. And so psychoeducation, which I typically start start treatment with it, and then I, I interweave it also throughout all of the treatment process because people are ready to hear different things at different times. It's a way of normalizing the traumatic experience and the responses. It, it lets them know that they're not crazy, for instance, uh, that's always the word crazy. I'm crazy. No, no, you're not crazy. That that's that's. I would be very careful to put that on anyone, but definitely okay. not someone who has a psychological injury. But helping them understand that these responses that they experience, these are normal for anyone who's been through what's happened to them. 
Also, another thing that I might do at the beginning of treatment is to help them with statistics. How many women had been sexually assaulted um, before the age of 18 and then in their lifetime? How many men, same thing. Um, what does that look like depending on the client? I talk about, you know, if for instance, as we're talking about sexual abuse, if, if they had been abused by someone that they knew, you know, we talk a lot about stranger danger to children and yet 90 some percent of, I think it's 96 or 97 percent of sexual assaults on children are by people that they know. And so, you know, they, they may have had these ongoing uh, traumatization for years. And they never said anything because their uncle, who on the other instances was, you know, seemed like a nice guy and everybody liked him or, or it was their dad and there was some, some shame around that or their grandfather. Uh, it's usually a male, but not always, but almost always a male. So I'm, I'm speaking in those gender terms. Yeah. Um, so helping normalize that experience. And so that might look like, you know, in a session, me showing the statistics or, or sharing uh, some worksheets from the National Child Traumatic uh, Network, a stress network, for instance, or from the uh, National Institute of Mental Health or from SAMHSA. Or I might uh, suggest that a client read a book. You know, if there were someone had molested some a, a woman who had been a child and it had been a father figure, you know, I might recommend Judith Herman's book, Father Daughter Incest, for this person and, and ask them to read it. So it sort of normalizes their experience. And in case you missed it from the terminology, because I'm sure this is going to be new to some of you, this is the education in psychoeducation. Mm -hmm. This is where we're kind of giving you a framework for making sense of some of what's happening. So if you yeah. see yourself yeah. as crazy, um, it's likely that all that's missing is, oh, okay, well, this doesn't seem rationally to make sense. Why am I behaving this way when this thing happens? All you would have to do is peel back the first layer to see, oh, that's connected to this. Oh, this is a bunch of nerve endings that are being jostled when this happens. Oh, maybe this is more connected after all. You start to get some of the psychoeducation, you start to see some representation. You look at the statistics, realize you're not the only one. Suddenly the world and the way you're showing up in it makes a little bit more sense. Absolutely. And it's also around the things that we use towards healing. There's some psychoeducation around that. And you're right, there's that education portion. We're not educating psychos, by the way. It's education around psychological ideas. So that's the psychoeducation. But for instance, around the healing, it might be that I will show a client a diagram of the vagus nerve system um, and show them where it kind of lies. So I might show them how it comes on the front of the ear and in the back of the ear, for instance, and then show them that when the the dorsal vagal system gets uh, activated and they go into a trauma response, you know, how can we activate that front vagus system? And it may be that remembering that, that uh, diagram that I show them that they can massage right in front of their ear, for instance, and they're literally activating their front ventral, uh, their ventral, that it means front, their ventral vagus system and, and moving it from that back uh, trauma response. So, you know, that, that part can come all the way through as, as we step through some, some different types of interventions that they might use in the middle. So that psychoeducation is more than statistics and it's more than normalizing. It's also teaching clients um, ways to actually own their bodies and their experience. 
um, and in ways that help them move forward in life. So, so that's the psychoeducation piece of the P. The parenting piece, which we might talk about, I know we will talk about some other time, but it's around reparenting that inner child is how I, I use that, that portion of the P, right? Um, if you have complex trauma and you have been abused as a child, even if it weren't your parents, most likely your parents were not told about it if it wasn't your parents, or even if they were, if you had gotten what you really needed, you most likely would not still be experiencing trauma responses. Not to say anything about parents who are good parents or that non-abusive parents, they just may or may not know what you need. Um, and we can't fault everyone for that, for sure. But uh, I know that all of us have this inner child piece that, that needs to be healed. And so part of that trauma treatment is helping that person see what it was that happened and then see what they needed in that moment and be able to give it to themselves. So that's that, that P part of the practice. Um, the R part is relaxation skills. If you think about trauma, you think about trauma injury, you think about being very tense, you think about fight or flight, um, you think about all of those things. And so it causes a lot of physical manifestations due to living in that survival state all the time. If my adrenaline and my cortisol and all of those chemicals are like going like crazy, then it's going to have some long-term physical effects on my body. Relaxing may actually be hard, if not triggering. I was gonna say, this is the one that sounds deceptively easy. It oh, sounds... let's rattle off five things you could try. I bet I can yeah. do them all this week. Well. Yeah, not so much. So yeah, think about, you know, if I say that relaxation can be triggering and people go, what are you talking about? And if I want you to think about if you were a child and someone, you would go to bed and you would start to relax to go to sleep and you'd be in that in-between state where your body's kind of being, and then that's usually when your abuser came in. Hmm. And so you learn that that relaxation state means that you will soon be abused somehow I don't think that's going to feel safe. Yeah, right? that's, yeah. that's an extreme example, except that it happens a lot. Sure, you just know that you're prone. Right, right. Or if you start relaxing, then you're no longer being able to be hypervigilant. And that feels very scary because um, who's going to watch for that, right? Um, I have had clients that for trying to learn to do some mindfulness, even just at the beginning of my practice several decades ago, um, even just closing their eyes was scary because if they closed their eyes in my office, then they didn't know what I was doing. Even if they felt safe with me, that trauma just comes right up and it's like, hmm, you know, how do I know? Yeah. And so relaxation can be very scary. And on top of that, clients don't know how to relax. And this needs to be um, sort of a skill building to help clients learn to manage the physical stress of the trauma that they're carrying. Do you find that this tends to be very uh, catered to the individual? I do. I do. I think um, if you had listened to our guests earlier, a um, couple of them, each of them talked about different ways that they managed their, their distress. Um, the first guest, MJ, talked about she had her dogs and she petted them and she went walking. 
Um, and those seemed to, and then she connected with other people and that seemed to work better for her. Kat mentioned that hers have to be more active because it was harder for her to sit still and feel relaxed. And so she goes to the gym, for instance, um, and she lifts weights and she runs and she also has a dog. I don't remember if she mentioned that or not, but you know, that, that, so there's some overlaps. So when we think relaxation, we're thinking, you know, lying on the couch or in a recliner or sitting still and meditating. And, and I'm big on that. And I do personally meditate and do some mindfulness. I think it's very important. But sometimes clients have to work up towards those things. And I think we also have this view that all relaxation has to look like some Buddhist monk somewhere in a temple. Nothing wrong with Buddhist monks in a temple. I kind of aspire towards that. Um, however, we have to sort of work to that. And it may be different people find their way of calming down differently. Um, for me, if I'm really keyed up, it's hard to sit still. And so I do go for walks. I walk most every day if I can. My dogs do appreciate that. Um, but when I'm walking, I don't use headphones. I listen to the sounds of nature. And we know that being out in nature actually increases dopamine, as does a walk. Um, so I'm feeling better about that. I will intentionally hug my, my dogs and, and, and pet my dogs. I have one dog who is a hugger, and Fitz will let me hug him as long as I want to hug him. And I know that that increases my oxytocin levels and raises my dopamine levels at the same time, decreasing my adrenaline and my cortisol. So there are different things that we can do to relax. They don't have to look like sitting here and doing a progressive muscle relaxation. Although that's a great one. It is a great one. And I will say, if you're worried about your cortisol levels, a lot of my clients are like, I'm gaining weight because of my cortisol levels because they've watched the commercials on TV. You can buy all the pills if you want. However, however, you can just do progressive muscle relaxation and that, that decreases your cortisol levels. And that's free, by the way. And you can do really fast ones. And so while I'm here, I'm going to give a really quick one for, it would be very practical for clients. There's one that we teach the children that actually adults can use too, and it's called turtling. So if you're listening and you're interested in doing this, I want you to picture what a turtle does when a turtle gets distressed. It contracts back into its shell. And so that's what we do with our body. We just pull in our muscles as tight as we can, and we hold them for just a few seconds, just as hard as we can, and then we let go. And it's really that letting go in that moment you know, it's, it's like we used to talk about squeezing a lemon as hard as you can for as long as you can and you let it go. This is just squeezing everything together in your shell and then just pop out of your shell all of a sudden. And just doing that a few times can decrease your cortisol levels. Mm. So if you're worried about your weight and cortisol levels, there's a freebie for you. Um, and, that's I, a, and that's a good one because it doesn't, it's one that doesn't take a lot of time or energy. Mm -hmm. And if you struggle with all or nothing thinking, it might be hard to let yourself stick with things when you see, oh, I have such a small capacity for even doing this one thing, so I won't do it at all. Um, I know this is easier said than done, but if you can give yourself permission to start small, these are things that you can gain capacity for. Yes, and thinking of those things, there's, there's a couple other ones that are very easy to use at the beginning. For instance, uh, buying uh, some cheap bubbles, the bubble solution, 
with a wand that you blow, not one that you wave around, but one that you blow through. And blowing bubbles. Um, I have, when I had an office, an actual office, it wasn't just virtual, I used to keep a basket of bubbles in the pinwheels in my office, not just for children. I have had um, war veterans take the bubbles and tell me how helpful they were. But blowing out is the bubble that exhale, that long controlled exhale moves you from the, the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system and it calms your system down. But because you're blowing bubbles and you're not relaxing, it doesn't feel threatening if relaxation is a trigger for you. So blowing bubbles or blowing one of those pinwheels that spin around from the dollar store. It's, um, it's funny how helpful. frivolous that sounds for how practical it actually is. Yeah. Because yeah. just having a specific concrete thing to do, mm -hmm. it, it makes it a lot easier to do the thing. Yes, yes. And after all these decades of working with people, I've yet to find anyone who associates bubbles with trauma. And so the cool thing is, while you're doing that, watching the bubbles is a mindful activity. Plus, it also brings joy to most people. Hmm. So bubbles, bubbles and pinwheels. I know that sounds silly, but, but like you said, it's extremely practical and it actually works. The biology is behind that. Hmm. So don't be afraid to get bubbles at the store for, for part of your R. Um, the A is affect regulation skills. In counseling and psychology, we talk about affect, but really we're talking about that's our emotions. Um, and so we, we want to be able to regulate those. With trauma response, a lot of times we are unable to regulate our affect. If that becomes really large, if we have a huge problem with regulating our affect, we might end up with a diagnosis like borderline personality disorder, a, a, a version of a pattern of trauma responses that sometimes is labeled this personality disorder, which we talked about before. But, mm -hmm. but if you've experienced complex trauma, affect regulation is a challenge for you. And it's not just around the trauma a lot of the time, but a lot of time it is around the trauma. So this is when we help people identify how they're feeling, for instance, because if you were that child who was invalidated, then your feelings don't matter. And so you probably didn't learn to put a name to how you felt. You didn't have an adult look at you and go, oh, are you scared right now? Or I can see that you're really angry or, you know, we didn't have adults do that. Um, if, you, if, if we were abused as children, that didn't happen. And so just naming how we feel can be just a new language totally. And being able to discriminate between being frustrated, irritated, and angry, being able to know that and then know how to handle that. So we learn to identify first um, the feelings and then how do we appropriately express these feelings? How anger is one of the many emotions that for children who have been abused and are now adults, anger is an emotion that they were not allowed to have. And yet, you know, they had it. So they all think they don't have it or they have it and they express it inappropriately, like too outwardly um, because they don't have any regulation over this because they weren't allowed to express it. So learning that being angry is actually okay. Um, and sometimes it's an appropriate response, you know, an outrageous anger. If someone violates your boundaries seems to be pretty appropriate, but it's what you do. How do you express that in an appropriate way? You know, um, hitting someone's not appropriate. I feel angry and will no longer allow you to abuse me. That seems pretty appropriate. 
Um, and so you, you, you learn to do that um, under that A. That's a complicated one, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. in a very broad, general way, um, we learn what requires immediate response. We learn to respond to threats or we learn to summon motivation when we have to meet a deadline. Mm -hmm. But then if you have this thing that is already through patterns of behavior at home all through growing up, you're already, oh no, don't pay attention to this. Dismiss this. This doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. You don't matter. And then after that, to have to start believing that it matters because it's you when you spent your whole life learning that you yourself don't matter. There's the whole process of having to resensitize to a thing mattering to begin with, Mm -hmm. but it's extraordinarily challenging to attach value to something when nobody has been there to hold it. Right, right. No one has shown value. If we think about our currency system, you know, really our dollars are pieces of paper that are printed. Actually, I hardly ever even carry the dollars anymore. What I have is some digital marker somewhere of my bank account balance, right? All that gives that worth is a general consensus that this is valuable. It's not tied to gold anymore. It hasn't been since I think the late or early 80s, maybe late 70s, whenever it was. It's just, it is just a perception of the value. If we think about the stock market, it's the same thing. It is a perception of the value. My home value, it is the perception of the value. Um, that is that is where the value, it's a general consensus. So if we grow up, like you were saying, and we are invalidated and we're shown that we have no value, and the general consensus is we are not valuable. How are we to develop a sense of value if the general consensus is we are not valuable? Where do we get that sense of value, right? How can we maintain a sense if we, it, we because it will feel insane if you are the if if you believe that you are the only one who places value on a thing, then it's easier and easier to second guess yourself. Yes, I remember being a teenager, and you know we think we're so wise when we're teenagers, and I I fancied myself as a poet, whatever, and I can do haikus because you know who can't do the syllables, right? But I I remember one line of a poem that I wrote, um, and it said, lunacy is a minority of one. And that still rings to me because it feels like, it doesn't mean that it is, It, it, it was, that's how it feels. It feels like if I'm a minority of one, then I'm the one with the lunacy. I'm the one who's crazy. I'm the one who is insane. And that's not necessarily true. You know, but we believe that. And the other thing I want to be very careful is we're talking about the worth. And I, I equated human worth with currency worth. First of all, I don't want to do that. But the second thing is human beings have an inherent worth. There, our currency does not. Our currency is what it is. It, I mean, I, I like having worth, but, <laughs> but it, it, it's not an inherent worth. It's inherent worth just because we can we decide to give it worth. But human beings have actual value just because they exist. And so it can feel crazy 
inside when I go, but I'm worth something. But then the rest of the world, as a children, our adults in our life are our rest of the world. And the rest of the world says, no, no, you're not. And yet there's this conflict within. And, and as we age and become adults, it, it's really hard to, to distinguish between, is it just me being like crazy? The lunacy being the minority of one, or is it me being, uh, you know, right? I really do have worth. Um, and so it, it, it's learning all of those things that we, we are allowed to have our feelings. We're allowed to be angry. We're allowed to express them. More so, it's not just allowed. We have the right. These are inherent rights that we have as human beings. We have the right to be angry. I can fall in love. I can hate fried chicken liver, which I do. And other people love it. You go, but don't around me because it stinks. I have that right to not like that. I have the right to not eat that. I have the right to protect my body and keep it safe. I have the right to say no. And as long as I have the right to say no, then that means I can say yes. Right? You can't really say yes unless you can say no. Yeah, you, you, yes can mean something if it was right. from a place of agency choosing it. Exactly. So we learn that we have agency around our affect, around our emotions. And so that's, that's the, the A part of the practice acronym. So the C part is cognitive processing skills. And this, of course, like I said, the practice model comes out of a CBT-based uh, treatment modality. However, it's really difficult to do any type of therapy if we don't talk about distorted thinking um, at some point. Um, it, it's just something that we all do. You've mentioned all or nothing thinking mm -hmm. already in this episode. And so we being able to talk about how we distort thinking and then the, the impact of thinking on our perception and our feelings about ourselves and the world and our, our interaction between the two. That um, enables us, if we understand that, that impact of those thinking um, on our feelings and our behaviors and how we perceive things, if we can understand that, that means that we can make intentional changes in there um, to impact how we feel and how we behave in the world and how we perceive things. So it's just like the word crazy. We keep saying that and like, I'm like, I'm not sure I would hang that on anyone. You know, I, I'm big on saying that trauma is not a mental illness, it is a psychological injury. And I know that I harp on that with my clients, but that language does make a difference. You know, it, it, it makes, makes a, a difference. If I were to fall and say, I damaged my leg, or if I said, I'm damaged, there's two different meanings there um, because there's two different beliefs underneath that. So making sure that we work through what are the links between our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors, and our perception with the world, right? And it's a way also of allowing us later on to bring meaning to our lives. Um, I will never ever say that trauma gives us meaning and makes our life more worthwhile. I will say that we, through our trauma, show our strengths and our strengths and our resiliency moves us to a place where we can create richer, deeper lives. Mm. Um, and see, that's another reframe. It is a big reframe. It's a huge reframe. Yeah. I think about um, 
you know, the, the terrible things that happen in your life are things you make meaning of. And I, I have found that oftentimes the ways that you've been cut the deepest um, end up being becoming pretty potent meaning makers because there's a lot you can do when, when you come at it with the authority of having had experience and you can reach out to others who are hurting in the same way that you have hurt. And you can sometimes offer hope that's hard for them to reach for on their own. Yes. And, and to add to that, there's several concepts around that, that my brain just went to like six different places. <laughs> but Rumi said, the poet Rumi said, I'm going to misquote him, which I guess is apropos since he wrote in Persian. So, but <laughs> wounds are the places where the light enters us, is what he said. Um, there's also a Japanese um, tradition of if something, a porcelain breaks, and they, they mend it with gold to make it more valuable afterwards. Kintsugi, I think is yeah, how you say I that? Yeah, I think it is. I think so. And then, uh, usually with my clients, I talk to them about painting masterpieces and we talk about what makes a difference between a masterpiece that say um, da, uh, da Vinci created or something that I create which I do not create masterpieces I am not an artist and we, we talk about that and we talk about they, they normally talk about the richness and the depth and the you know it, it feels real and so we as we pull them up and I typically will show pictures of different ones and they will almost always get to a place where it is an interplay between the light and the dark. But that's what makes that richness in the, in the art masterpieces. It's, it's the, the use of light contrasted with the dark that makes the Mona Lisa the Mona Lisa. Or uh, anything from Rembrandt. Or anything from Rembrandt. And even Monet with his watercolors, there's still, you can see the contrast between the light and the dark. And so, you know, that's, we're able to take that. Now, it doesn't say that we have to go, oh, great, thanks for all the darkness. <laughs> but what we can do is go, well, I have this darkness and I have to use it, so how can I best use it in my life using my strengths? And so reframing it around that, using that as a way to, to move towards Actually, I believe is truth. I mean, when we were talking about cognitive restructuring, we never want to be anywhere away from truth. It's always around authenticity and around truth. But it is true that trauma is not what created who we are. If we've been through trauma, how we responded and how we survived through it, good job us. And that's what's created us. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think that that is important to, to hold on to. Yeah, yeah. I have a hard time with that. Uh, I think a lot of people who say this mean well, but but people saying everything happens for a reason. Uh, because it just because I take that as a pretty fatalistic way of looking at things, and 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 ultimately it sounds like there must be some pretty sadistic powers behind all this if that's if that's how it all works. Um, but but I do find that the pain that you walk through does have an intensely clarifying effect when it comes to placing value on what is worth treasuring in this life and what is worth protecting for yourself and for others sake yeah, yeah that that everything happens for a reason is a that's a hot button because 
you know, how do you look at, I, I've looked at seven-year-olds, you know, I can picture one in my mind who had no front teeth sitting there telling me about her, of her uh, multiple rapes and talking to me about it. And she's like, how, basically, how, why did this happen? And for me to say everything happens for a reason feels more than a little capricious and cruel. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it, yeah, those statements are not helpful. Now, one statement that I know a lot of people do not like, it is what it is, is one I use a lot because unfortunately that did happen. It is what it is. It's that radical acceptance idea that we may talk about in another episode, but, but that everything happens for a reason is never helpful for trauma victims. Yeah, so this is a this is a big one. This is going to be a two parter. Um, anything else uh, that we ought to cover in the uh, cognitive processing skills before we wrap up this one? Um, I think the only thing is just to remember that again. I'm going to repeat that it's always about moving towards truth, moving towards a helpful truth, and not a truth that is not productive and unhelpful. And so, looking at how do we reframe? Well, we reframe by looking at reality and we look at what is the most helpful view of this reality again around truth so mm, finding a way forward instead of staying stuck in that moment that you that you find yourself even if even if just emotionally um uh, snapping back to yeah thanks for joining us for this this was the first half of explaining the practice model for understanding uh trauma and the way that we sort of start to build um to start to create structure in pursuing that healing process. So we covered skill building and stability, and we'll get into the rest of it next time. Hope to see you there.